This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Chris Salcedo. The truth is, without opposition, in Mr. Obama's case, with opposition, as a matter of fact, libs seek these, this government control over, over all of us. And, 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 and specifically those who don't agree with them. Uh, they show their religious bigotry, their ideological bigotry. If they were given free reign, freedom would evaporate in this country. Chris Salcedo, Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Just looked up on CNN. How about the Americans who took down that Muslim gunman on the train in uh, in Europe? I guess the train was leaving Amsterdam, headed to Paris. How about that? The, the, the guy had 200 rounds of ammunition, and these American Marines took the gun from him and beat him unconscious with it. That's awesome. Uh, so we'll get more. That's so cool. We'll get more uh, details as the week goes on. I can't wait for more of the story to come out, and I'm sure we'll tell it in greater detail next week. Coming up in this hour, uh, I want to talk about Donald Trump, but not so much Trump as much as his book, The Art of the Deal. He wrote it in 1987. Trump is a master negotiator, and he's using his tricks of the, the business trade in his campaign. And that's why no one knows what he's doing. <laughs> that's why no one has any idea what he's doing. He's playing three-dimensional chess against two-dimensional opponents, as Scott Adams put it. He is, he is Bruce Lee and everyone else just a bunch of drunk guys at the bar. And no one has any clue what to do. And it's because he's using all of his uh, techniques. So we'll break down three ways that he's using his art of the deal techniques in his campaign uh, coming up in this hour. First, though... Uh, a couple days ago, two days ago, I think, I uh, recorded this interview with Glenn. Uh, it's never been played before. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. We, it was supposed to talk, we were supposed to talk about his book. I don't think we ever got to it, though. Um, talked much more about life and all, the, all that good stuff. So uh, let's kick it off. We'll play part one right here. This is an interview with Glenn from a couple days ago. Glenn, how are you, sir? Good, man. How are you? Wonderful. Good to talk to you. How is my favorite city in America? I'm <laughs> missing you. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, perfect. Oh, what man. are you? What are you doing, Glenn? Why aren't you out here? I don't. Because you have my perfect job. You have the job that I wanted since I was a kid. A KFMB B seventy two and sunny. I shut up. <laughs> All like the time. Seventy eight here and <laughs> beach right down the street, Glenn. You're always welcome. You know that. Yeah, I know. Uh, right. We'd love for you to re- move your headquarters in this direction. Oh man, I would love to. If it, and you know, let me tell you something. If you weren't in California, I would. we're working on it. We're working on changing that. If it, was, if it was San Diego, Arizona. I would <laughs> uh, Glenn, I got to ask you before we get to the book. Uh, what did you learn about yourself during your month off? That I should be quiet more often. Um, good question. Um, that uh, the world is uh, spiraling out of control and it will um, uh, continue to spiral out of control whether I'm a part of it or not. And so don't get so worked up. Um, 
Uh, and the, the biggest thing I learned, you know, this is the most time I had a month off. It's the most time I have been away from a microphone since I was 14. Wow. And so when that happens, you, everything in my life is, especially when I have, you know, four or five hours a day to fill, everything in my life is, can I use that? Can I use that? What did that teach me? What is that? Yeah. So I haven't really spent any time just being, you know, not turning everything into something that I could talk about on the radio, just being, not cataloging. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and doing that, I realized that the world that the average person lives in is really sweet. <laughs> it's really sweet. I like it. When you don't have to be uh, looking at the news and analyzing everything, boy, I, I understand why more Americans are just not Paying attention. So when, when doctors first told you that you would have to take a month off, what was the first thing that crossed your mind? Was it, oh, good, I get to do that, or, or what? Uh, no, nobody besides Rush Limbaugh has ever taken a month off yeah. and survived. Yep. And uh, my first thought was, good God, what, I mean, what do I have left when I get back? And uh, I was blessed to have not a single station drop, not a single wow. sponsor drop, uh, nothing. And it was a, it was a tremendous blessing and a show of real loyalty. Our ratings stayed the same. People continued to tune in. I mean, we were just greatly blessed. Well, that's a testament to, uh, everything the last couple of years, right? What you've built is bigger than yourself. Is that, do you find that to be true? Oh, I hope so. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Cause I'm kind of a, I find myself smaller and smaller, uh, every day. Yeah, that's a sign of a good leader, though, isn't it? Uh, maybe. I hope so. Yeah, I hope. I'm reading this book right now, Gates of Fire. I don't know if you've ever read it. Um, nope. It's about the Battle of Thermopylae. And it's told by one of three survivors of the battle, and he's one of the slaves. And it's just fascinating to me that this grand, triumphant battle, right? Heroism and courage shown by the Spartans. It's told by a slave, right? the one person who was left to tell it. So it really got me thinking. Outside of your family, of course, who's the one person that you would want to tell the story of Glenn Beck? Can't choose family? No. Too close. Because this was was a slave, right? This wasn't one of the fellow warriors. It was a slave who told the story. Maybe Pat. Pat's kind of seen the ups and the downs, so he knows the bad and the good. You know, I don't know. I mean, I I often think of this because, uh, you know, uh, uh, who's going to tell my story? Who's just going to protect what I've said after I'm gone? Uh, And, uh, you know, I've had universities reach out to me and they want all my papers and they want everything. (laughs) I haven't given those up to anybody because I don't trust a university. And I look at my children, and I think that's a horrible burden to put on them. I mean, you know, to to protect your father after he's dead is a weird thing. So I don't know. I don't. I, I yeah. doubt. I doubt that I'm going to be the one that anybody is going to look to to remember in this time period. Well, I think we're in a. I think we're in a period now of of we're going to start to see real giants start to. Uh, rise up. I remember you talked to the girl, the young girl who stood in front of the police. And I loved that interview. I loved Unbelievable. It. One of the worst and Absolutely. simultaneously best interviews. <laughs> Absolutely. Why the, why, why the worst? She, she, she didn't have <laughs> anything to say. 
<laughs> you know, it's like, yep. so why are we there? Because <laughs> it was the right thing to do. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just, the, it was, it was everything any talk show host looks to avoid. Yep. But it was the best interview because she was absolutely real. She had no agenda. She just thought it was the right thing to do. It was so real and raw and great. And listening to it, it felt right. It felt awkward, but it felt right. So yeah. uh, is that the future? Not Glenn Beck, but this oh, yeah. girl's like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The future is, the future is uh, uh, individuals, all just individuals uh, rising up. I mean, you know, maybe in the end there'll be somebody that'll eventually be on a stamp, um, yeah. but it's just going to be people who rise up and say, I, I, I've had enough. I've had enough. No, no, you're not going to take that right away from me. So this ties into the book, I think. Um, first of all, how long do you have, Glenn, to chat? I have no idea. <laughs> Perfect. When you I'm get hollered at, let me know. Um, I don't even know what time it is. What, yeah, <laughs> um, who's this book for? Uh, uh, to be real honest, mm -hmm. um, my soul. Uh, I think we're in time now. Uh, and I've been saying this for a while, and I don't think people get it, and and uh, and that's okay. But uh, I really feel strongly that we're in a time period now that you better be seen by God, um, standing for the right things and making sure it's very clear. I I, I stand with life. Um, you know, I think I think when they're raping uh, nine-year-old girls six times a day for a year and a half, and the world says nothing, and we know it, and these stories are coming out now, and they're horrendous. Um, uh, it's the biggest genocide of Christians since the beginning of Christianity. Um, the Muslims are being slaughtered that aren't Muslim enough. Homosexuals are being thrown off of buildings. We have not, not just a petri dish now of, of baby parts that are being sold by uh, um, uh, Planned Parenthood, but now the latest video is a fully birthed baby that is still alive and they remove the brain. When, when, when the images are that stark and that clear, only God's judgment can come upon uh, its people. When, when, when you are told, this is what's happening, where do you stand? Mangala is in your, in your home now. Mangala is spilling out of your television and out of your computer. You're seeing his experiments. You're seeing the torture. You're seeing the gas chambers. We know they have warehouses of thousands of women who are sex slaves. We know where the warehouses are. I could show you pictures of them. When we know them, when we see them, when we see the baby alive that is being killed by doctors in the name of science, you better stand up. You better stand up, and not for anybody else, but for your soul. I'm sure you know the story of uh, Bush involved, the uh, one of the internment camps, and yeah. Patton and the the other generals, Eisenhower and them, uh, brought the Germans from the town yeah. next door, and they marched through the camp. and And what they kept saying over and over was, "We didn't know. We didn't know." Bullcrap. Mm. First of all, bullcrap. Those I, I've been to Auschwitz. 
you couldn't have gotten around the smell yeah. of Auschwitz. It was far too large, and it was it, it, you, you had cars going in and out, trucks going in and out, transporting the prisoners so you could have them work. So, so what did I they mean by I that? I don't buy that in the first place, but in the second place, we no longer have that excuse. Yeah. We know. Nobody is going to nobody's going to put us on trial and say and and accept that you didn't know. What do you mean you didn't know? It it, it was it was trending on Facebook, it was trending trending yeah. on Twitter, it was on every television station. You had access. Did you just avoid it? Yes, I did. I just turned away. I looked the other direction. Why do people turn? Because I don't think it's that, uh, you know, people say we need America to wake up. <clears throat> I don't think that's it. I don't think people are asleep. It's different than that. They I don't, don't want to see it. Yeah. They don't want to see it because they don't know what to do. <sighs> that's much different than being do. asleep. And, and you know, Mike, I, I just don't think this is going to be a huge movement because, you know, you look back in the you look back at the founding of the country and 30 um, percent were with the king. 30% were with the founders, and 30% said, I'm not going to get in between you guys. Whatever, I'm fine. Okay? So it was only 30% that was for the American Revolution. Out of that 30%, only 8% actually did anything about it. Eight. So can we find 8% of this population that says, I'm not going anywhere? I'm sorry. These things are against. Nature's laws, nature's God. I'm sorry, but this is this is just wrong. The first thing in the Declaration of Independence is life. If we as a society, if we as a society accept that doctors are killing babies, poisoning them, birthing them, taking their brains out while they're still beating hearts for science, we are no different than Nazi Germany. No different whatsoever. And people don't want to look at that because they don't want to, they don't want to see that baby sitting there because they know it's a baby. Yeah. It's not a piece of tissue. That, Nobody wants to see that nine-year-old girl testify about how she was raped eight times a day while some Islamist was praying and while raping her brutally saying to her, I'm getting closer to God because I'm doing this because you're a Christian and I'm a Muslim. Nobody wants to look at that because then they're implicated because then they have to do something about it and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. Ah, tough spot, place to stop. We're going to take a break. I want to come back. We'll end on a lighter note. I ask Glenn the thing he loves most about his wife, and you'll really like that answer. Coming up next, Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders. Apologies. The next segment uh, of our Glenn Beck interview is nine minutes, and we only have five minutes. So I promise we will do it in the third segment of this hour. Uh, but this leaves me with five minutes to tell a quick story uh, about resolution. Uh, on my local show, this became the theme of the week. We never intend to have a theme of the week, but uh, someone there's always, there's always a theme that comes up. And it ties in nicely to what Glenn was saying, because there's going to be a lot of 
in, in the creation of giants, as Glenn mentions, there's going to be a lot of hurdles and it's going to seem insurmountable. And we just have to be resolute. I'll tell a quick um, A story from Alexander the Great. So uh, I wonder when was he around, like 300 BC, something like that. And he went out to conquer the Persian Empire. And he came to the city of Tyre, which is in Lebanon, just north of Israel. And he took it over. But the thing is, Tyre was actually two cities. There was a city in two halves. One was on the mainland, and he had no problem taking that over. But then about a mile was an island. It was the other half of the city. And really, that was the important part. That's where all the raw materials materials were, and a lot of farming, and the main temple was on the island. So Alexander the Great wanted to go take that island. The thing is, it was an island, and it was over there. But even more than that, there were walls all around this island. 200 feet high, 150 feet thick. So so imagine that so, uh, 200 feet is like a 20-story building. So 20-story building tall and a 15-story building thick. So it's impossible to take that city, right? Well, Alexander the Great did not think so. So he decided to build a bridge to this island. Did I say it's about a mile away? So he decided to build a bridge to the island so that they could get the equipment necessary to bust through the walls. So they started to build the bridge. And then the, the people in Tyre uh, started shooting flaming arrows at the people building the bridge. So Alexander placed two catapults to defend the workers who were building the bridge. A couple months into construction, the uh, bridge was coming along pretty good, and they got about halfway there. And then the people of Tyre filled these big ships with anything that burned. And they set the ships on fire and steered them into the bridge and the catapults. So, so, you imagine these big flaming ships just like, ah, geez, what are we going to do? And the ships just barreled right into the, the wood bridge and burned everything. So, Alexander, uh, he's not known as Alexander the pretty good. Because Alexander the all right would have been like, all right, we're moving on. But Alexander the great said, all right, build the bridge twice as wide this time. So, they started building again. And then when the bridge was halfway there, they started a blockade around the ports. And then they sent these boats around to try and test the walls and find the weaker points of the walls. But then the people of Tyre started pushing in these giant boulders into the water around the walls so that the the boats couldn't get close. So then Alexander built these huge cranes to lift the boulders out of the way. (laughs) So they just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Long story short, they they, uh, built the bridge and the ships rammed into the walls and the catapults rained stones into the city and nine months is is what it took, which is pretty fast in 300 BC. So Alexander the Great took the city. I love this story because it's the story of resolution, right? Of never giving up. A, doing something that no one was thought possible and B, coming up with a plan. The plan gets foiled Big time, over and over. I mean, imagine how frustrating when you get the bridge halfway there, and then the Tyrians just push a bunch of ships on fire into your bridge. <laughs> You're like, oh, come on. But he kept going. He had his plan. His plan failed. Made a new plan. Kept trying and trying and trying, and then eventually won. We have to teach our kids to be resolute. You know, if we, if we protect our kids from failure, which, you know, in this trophy culture that we have today, if we protect our kids from failure, then they'll never learn to be resolute. They'll never learn that skill. They'll never strengthen that muscle. All the great virtues are 
muscles. And of course, people are born with you know some inclinations to some or the other. But they're all muscles that need to be worked out to perfect. And resolution is one of those. So we need to teach our kids it and we need to have it ourselves. Because times are going to get tougher. Things are going to get harder. And maybe bleaker. But we need some resolution. Glenn talks a little bit about that next. We'll play the final part of our interview with Glenn Beck. Coming up next, Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being here. So we uh, kicked off this hour playing the first half of an interview that I recorded with Glenn, I think, two days ago. And uh, we were supposed to talk about his book, and I don't know, we barely got to it. I think out of the 25 minutes, we talked about it for like two. Um, but we had some other good conversations that I'd love to share with you right now. So this is part two of our interview the other day with the one and only Glenn Beck. We've been exploring on the show things that are written on the human heart, things that not only transcend political ideology, but cultures. And I have to tell time. you, it is really good. I've done a billion interviews this week, and it is really good to talk to a good talk show host. You, are the, you have some of the best questions anyone has asked me. Thank you, sir. Appreciate yeah. that, Glenn. Uh, as I said before, you're the reason I got into it. So here we are. Um, so we talked about sacrifice and taught, you know, we value, we get it. We talked about the movie, the Titanic. We talked about Viking mythology. We talked about Hindu mythology to bring all these things in to prove that sacrifice is written on the human heart, transcends time and culture. What value is written on the heart of Amer- of humans that we need to really tap into? I would say, um, I was going to say courage, but I think courage comes from uh, devotion to God. Um, when there's something bigger than yourself, um, and and you really have that written on your heart, I, I, I my soul has been purchased. And when when you are looking at things and say, I've been purchased. And so I am not a slave to any man, but I am a slave to God, and I will do because I fear him. Not in a, ooh, he's going to vaporize me. I don't believe God punishes us. I believe God begs us to turn around, and if we don't, he allows us to reap our own consequences. I'm, I'm purchased by him, and so I will serve him, and that's what gives me courage to stand what gives me courage and, and, and a willingness to say the things that have to be said. Um, you know, people will say to me, well, you're just trying to sell a book or you're just trying to get ratings. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> There's a lot easier ways to yeah. do that yeah. and, and not get yourself killed, not have to have 20. You've seen my security, 24-7 security all the time. My kids last week 
tried on bulletproof vests. Mm. You do that with your ten ten year old kid. Yeah. You try to explain what the what the um, uh, Kevlar blanket is in mommy and daddy's bedroom. You you just do that and tell me any price, any any amount of money is worth that. It's not. What is worth it is I'm going to return home and my creator is going to look at me and he's going to say, here's what happened while you were alive. Uh-huh. What did you do? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, all right, two more questions. I know you got to go, Glenn, real quick. Um, just yesterday, we talked about Nick Piantanita. Uh, this is the guy who broke the record for the highest skydive uh, before it was broken a few years ago by Felix Berngarter or whatever. His name is. And he died on his last attempt, uh, like 1966. And I found it so interesting that here's Nick. He's, he's brave. He's courageous. He's amazing. He's an adventurer. And then he fails. And he's an irresponsible fool. You know, so there, there's a fine line between... Uh, I was reading in his, his biography. There's a fine line between splendor and folly. What's the line for you? <laughs> uh, where, where are you from a risk-taking, persevering, courageous man to an irresponsible, foolhardy whatever? That's going to be left up to the person who protects my life story and tells my life story. That's it. <laughs> um, I have no control over that. Um, I will tell you that everything I do, I prey on. Should I do this? Um, if it's true and nobody is willing to say it, that needs to be done. If it's true um, and nobody's willing to say it, that needs to be done. Yeah. And, and, and Mike, we have, I mean, I get this from Ezekiel. You read Ezekiel, and mm-hmm. he talks about in those days there will be um, watchmen. I will place watchmen on the tower. Watchmen on the tower. And um, they will cry out when they see trouble approaching. And if they don't cry out, if they don't blow the trumpet, the blood of all those that could have heard their warning will be on their hands. Now, I had I was driving in a truck one time up at the up at the farm, and and uh, the farmer was driving with me, and he said, um, you know, why do you do the things you do? And and I told him Ezekiel. And he sat there quietly for a while. We didn't say anything. And he said, man, I can't imagine having the millions of lives, the blood of their lives. I can't imagine what you go through on that. And I said, uh, let me tell you, I actually feel sorry for people like you. Because it's really easy for me to see I've got millions of listeners that could hear the warning. And if I don't blow the trumpet... They, they could have been saved, and they, I didn't blow the trumpet that I'm in trouble. But you, you don't see you're a watchman on the tower, too. You just think you're a farmer. You don't see the responsibility that you have to everybody you influence. My soul is in less jeopardy than your soul. How many farmers changed the world? Uh, even Nick uh, Berningarten, the guy I was talking about, he uh, was a truck driver from New Jersey. Right? So ev- everyone has that potential. Let's empower everybody. people. Let's empower people. That's beautiful. And everybody has, not that potential, everybody has the responsibility. I'm telling you, this is the time. We are so blessed to live in this time because we are living in a time where giants will be made. And... And really, truly, disgraces will be had. There will be families 
that are currently alive today that their children or grandchildren will look back and they will say, oh my gosh, how was my parent or grandparent so silent? How... And they won't want to know your name. They won't want to know anything about you. They will be ashamed of the silence. And then at the same time, there will be those families, the next generation or the generation past, that will say, I, let me tell you about my grandparents. Let me tell you what they did. When the world went insane, here's what they did. I, I think it's a challenge to each of us to be to give our pro, uh, posterity the the um, ability to not be ashamed of us. <laughs> That's great. That's beautiful. Last question. It's a short one. Um, Stephanie, my wife, if you're listening now, please turn the radio off. Um, I have a, a book that uh, I write every day, something I love about my wife that day, something she did, something I saw her do, whatever. <laughs> And, I hate you. And, and I can't you're wait to living sh- in San Diego. You're a better talk show host than I am, and you are, uh, uh, and you're, uh, and and you're a good husband as well. I'm trying. Shut up. And, <laughs> it's going to be a good day when I show that book to her. I don't even know when I'm going to. Maybe never. Right. Um, you, what is the your favorite thing about your wife yesterday? Her laugh. Laying in bed with the kids and having a tickle fight and hearing her laugh. It is my favorite thing. Every day I hear her laugh. It is, it's, you know, there's, like, you know, there's something contagious and something wonderful and pure about the sound of a baby's laugh. I feel the same way about my wife. I just, I, I used to watch The Office with her. And I would sit with her on the couch, and she would kind of sit on the edge of the couch, and I'd lean back. I wasn't watching the show. I was watching her. I love her laugh. Uh, and I remember the days when I used to make her. All <laughs> 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 oh, those days don't come back. <laughs> Glenn Beckett is about Islam exposing the truth about ISIS, Al Qaeda, Iran, and the Caliphate. Uh, just buy it. It's by Glenn. Glenn, always a pleasure, sir. God bless, man. There you go. Glenn Beck, the one and only. I uh, recorded that a couple of days ago. Hope you enjoyed it. one 888 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. What's the line for you? <laughs> uh, where, where are you from a risk-taking, persevering, courageous man to an irresponsible, foolhardy whatever? That's going to be left up to the person who protects my life story and tells my life story. That's it. <laughs> um, I have no control over that. Um, I will tell you that everything I do, I pray on. Should I do this? Um, if it's true and nobody is willing to say it, that needs to be done. If it's true um, and nobody's willing to say it, that needs to be done. Yeah. It, it, and, and, and Mike, we have, I mean, I get this from Ezekiel. You read Ezekiel, and mm-hmm. he talks about in those days there will be um, watchmen. I will place watchmen on the tower, watchmen on the tower. And they will cry out when they see trouble approaching. Uh, 
And if they don't cry out, if they don't blow the trumpet, the blood of all those that could have heard their warning will be on their hands. This is Mike Slater. I love that line. If it's true and no one's willing to say it, that needs to be done. If it's true, to say it, say it out loud, because you have to. If it's true and no one's willing to say it, that needs to be done. Uh, I want to tie a few things in here in our remaining four minutes. Um, about you know, Glenn is saying that we all have a duty to be giants. We're all giants in the making, and real giants are going to stand up, and we have no idea of when it's going to be. And. In this segment, uh, two segments ago, we were talking about the importance of resolution and how we build resolution and why it's so important to be resolute. I want to talk about Stephen Colbert for a second. I'm a big, I'm going on record here, big Stephen Colbert fan. I really want his late night show to be successful. I think it starts in a few weeks here. I think he's fantastic. I I really think he's great. Really so smart and quick and I think he's great probably one of my favorite entertainers today. Steven was the youngest of 11 children. His dad was the vice president of a medical university in South Carolina. His dad and his two brothers who were closest in age to him and all the other brothers were out of the house. They were in college or adults or just out of the house. So it was really him, his mom, mom, and dad, Steven, and then these two brothers. Well, his dad and his two brothers died in a plane crash. Stephen was 10. Paul and Peter were his brothers closest to him. They died in that plane crash, which meant it was now only him and his mom in, in, in home. He said his mom was broken, but not bitter. And Stephen had a rough time with it, but he he didn't realize until he was 35 that that's what made him the man he is today. Just yesterday, yesterday morning, I was talking with my CrossFit trainer, um, and we're just talking about his life and his kids and all that. And he said, yeah, my dad, you know, he left us. Uh, he's a meth addict. And I said, man, what do you, how do you feel about that? He's like, well, it you know, made me who I am today. And that's exactly what Stephen Colbert said. He said, you got to learn to love the bomb. Boy, did I have a bomb when I was 10. That was quite an explosion. And I learned to love it. So that's why maybe, I don't know. That might be why you don't see me as someone angry. And working out my demons on stage. It's that I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Let let me say that sentence again. This is crazy. I love the thing that I wish most had not happened. I I love the thing. (laughs) I love that sentence so much. I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. So just think about those two sentences. The one Glenn said, 
If it's true and no one's willing to say it, that needs to be done. And then the Stephen Colbert sentence. I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. I think those two sentences are going to be very important in the next couple of years here. Because the thing that you most wish does not happen will probably happen. Are you going to be able to learn how to love it? That's a that's a whole different task. Not just survive it, but love it. I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Goodness gracious, we got a lot of things coming up here. Um, sort of on that note, did you end up watching the video with Hillary Clinton and the Black Lives Matter protesters? I don't think many people were able to watch the whole thing, which is why no one's talking about one thing she said. She said, I don't believe you change hearts. I believe you change laws, you change systems, and you change the allocation of resources, but you don't change hearts. What? That is unbelievable. So I want to talk about that coming up, but right when we get back, as promised, as I said I would do in the last hour, uh, I want to talk about Donald Trump and his Art of the Deal book from 1987. He's using all the techniques of business negotiation in his campaign, and that's why no one has any idea what what to do. Because <laughs> he's not running a political campaign. He's running a business negotiation. We'll outline that coming up next. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Uh, kicked off the show last hour with uh, an interview we did with uh, Glenn Beck. We recorded it just a couple days ago, played it back for the first time here an hour ago. Um, we were supposed to talk about his book, and I don't know, we mentioned it for. Maybe 30 seconds out of the 25 minutes we talked. So uh, I had a great conversation. And, of course, you can check that out at the Blaze. Uh, what is it? Theblaze.com slash radio. Theblaze.com slash radio with all of our podcasts from everyone on the Blaze Radio Network. I'm looking at the uh, Huffington Post right now. Headline, The Hillary Hiccup. What? It's one way to characterize the last couple of weeks, I suppose. But be a little stronger than a hiccup. Uh, but I don't want to talk about her. I want to talk about the Donald. Now, before I begin this segment here, please know that this analysis is neither pro nor against Donald Trump. These are merely statements of observation. You can decide to do whatever you want with it. And I guarantee you, at the end of this segment, I will get 10 emails from people saying, how dare you be against Donald Trump? And I'll get 10 emails from people saying, how dare you be in support of Donald Trump? And I, I guess that's just the way it goes. So I just want to make it clear, I'm, this has nothing to do with being for or against. So the most obvious analysis of Donald, Donald Trump's success is he says it like it is. He's not PC. He's authentic. All that stuff. Which is fine. But you also can't forget that Donald Trump literally wrote the book on negotiating. 
1987, he wrote Art of the Deal, one of the highest-selling business books of all time. He wrote the book on negotiating. So we cannot overlook the fact that he is very aware of the finer points of persuasion. And obviously, he will use those persuading techniques out on the campaign trail. The campaign, campaign, campaign trail. He is the master of them. So Scott Adams has, has uh, found three, three techniques in particular. I'm going to break them down here. Agree and amplify. Anchoring. And assuming the sale. Three business negotiating techniques uh, that the Trump is using in his campaign. We'll start with assume the sale. So salespeople use this on you all the time. When you go to a car dealership and you go and you don't really know what you want and you're asking questions about cars in general and what they have and all this stuff, the salesperson uh, real quickly will jump to, well, what do you think? Do you prefer the red Honda Civic or the blue Honda Civic? They're assuming the sale. They're acting as if the sale has already been made. They're acting as if you've already decided that you want a Honda Civic. And now we're just talking about the color. And you're, <laughs> you're thinking, well, I don't, I, I don't even want a Honda Civic. But I don't know. I guess we'll have a blue one. Assume the sale. You may have heard salespeople say stuff like, well, uh, how many can I put you down for? Before the person even agrees that they want any. And when you encounter a good salesperson, they're, uh, they're confident. They're a few steps ahead of you. And you start to take on those same qualities of confidence, right? You feel like you're in control. If you have a confident salesperson, you feel like you are in control, but you're just really following the lead that's set by the salesperson. Now, again, Trump wrote the book on this. Wrote the book on it. So let's give a couple examples. First of all, Mexico is going to pay for the wall. You've heard that, right? Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Why do you think he says that? Why is he saying Mexico is going to pay for the wall? Now, first of all, do you really think Mexico is going to pay for the wall? Of course not. No, he, no one thinks Mexico is going to pay for the wall. He doesn't even think Mexico is going to pay for the wall. He's assuming the sale. He's separating himself. He's distinguishing himself. Everyone, every other candidate says build a wall. So he can't just come out and say, build the wall. He's got to say, build the wall and have Mexico pay for it. So now already the wall's getting built. That's an assumed thing. That's like, well, of course there's going to be a wall. Not only is there going to be a wall, but they're going to pay for it. Right? He's assuming the sale. Another way. He keeps saying over and over that he's worth $10 billion. Right? You've heard it over. I'm rich. I got a lot of money. I'm worth $10 billion. He's thinking past the sale. The sale is that Donald Trump is a successful business person and can solve problems. Now, when he says I'm worth $10 billion, he doesn't now have to prove how he's successful or how he's ever solved the problem. Notice he hasn't one time talked about any business deal that he's ever made or any problem that he's ever solved. He's never gone into details about anything. And he hasn't talked about how any of those business principles will apply to being president. It doesn't matter. He already sold people on that by saying, I'm worth $10 billion. People don't need any more convincing of his success. He's worth $10 billion. What else do you need? 
you would think he'd be knocking out story after story after story of how I took this business and I made it into this business or I uh, I took this nothing and I turned it into something. All right. He'd be telling these stories or there, uh, you know, these people wanted this to happen. But I said, no, we need this to happen. I made this decision. And if we did that, then this would have happened. But good thing we did what I wanted to do. And this happened. he hasn't told one of those stories. All he says is I'm worth 10 billion dollars. He's assuming the sale. And also, I think the latest, I don't know, has he released his, his uh, financials? I don't even know if he has, but my, my understanding was he's worth $9 billion. So why is he saying 10? He's saying 10 because it's a nice round number, and people remember nice round numbers. Again, he knows what he's doing here. This, none of this is an accident. Second point, anchoring. Where should we start with anchoring? We'll start here. His motto. What's his motto? Make America great. Three powerful, positive words. Make, right? We like to make things. America, obviously. And then great. Someone's campaign slogan, uh, I want smaller government. Loser. That is a loser campaign slogan because smaller is a negative word and government is a negative word. Make America great. Right? He's got people saying yes, yes, and yes, which is another sales technique, right? Get people saying yes. But everything he does goes back to his brand, his motto, his anchor. Make America great. Everything goes back to that. Everything. It's called setting an anchor. Third sales technique. I got another example of an anchor that we'll talk about later. Third sales technique. Agree and amplify. This is my favorite. So after the debate, I think it was CNN, interviewed Trump, and they tried They tried to nail him, right? And you can see, this is what's so funny. Donald Trump is Bruce Lee, and all the everyone else is a drunk guy at the bar trying to beat up Bruce Lee. Like they're not even close. It's, it's hilarious to watch. The other politicians try to make sense of him, and interviewers try to trap him. You can't. You have no clue. You have no chance. Right? He is the master negotiator. Stop trying to get him in a corner. You're not going to. But they tried. So I think it was um, uh, National Review. After the debate, they wrote an article, and it was t- entitled, Donald Trump, the most fabulous whiner. The most fabulous whiner. Call him a whiner. So CNN, they say, hey, Donald Trump, you know, people are calling you a whiner. What do you think about that? You know what he said? He said, yep, I'm a whiner. I'm the best whiner of all time. <laughs> he says the country needs more people who aren't afraid to whine to get things done and make America great again. Agree and amplify agree with the attack yeah i'm a whiner and amplify i'm the best whiner ever here's what he actually said he said um here's i think he's probably right they said so you know they called you a whiner i think he's probably right i am the most fabulous whiner i do whine because i want to win and i'm not happy if i'm not winning and i am a whiner and i'm a whiner and i keep whining and whining until i win and I'm going to win for the country, and I'm going to make our country great again. Oh, like that is 
so brilliant because the, the, the uh, CNN thought they they had him. <laughs> and Trump came back and was like, yeah, I'm a whiner. Best whiner ever. And CNN's like, oh, oh, oh that's not what I thought you were going to say. It's amazing. Did you also notice in that sentence, or in that uh, answer, he said, uh, let me count them. Um, I whine because I want to win. I'm not happy if I'm not winning. Uh, I'm going to keep whining until I win, and I'm going to win for the country and make America great. So he said the word win four times. Four times! I think that was an accident. It was by mistake, just randomly. He said the word, I'm going to win four times. These are not the ramblings of a crazy person. These are the ramblings of someone who wrote the book on negotiating and persuading people to his cause. Scott Adams says that Trump is playing three-dimensional chess against two-dimensional opponents. I want to come back with one more example, but let me just end it with the same thing I started with. I'm not including any value judgment in any of this analysis whatsoever, only to say that when people call him a straight talker, Is <laughs> he made me think of all well isn't he isn't he a straight t- well I mean I don't know I uh, it's I'll say this he's a business negotiator you decide how straight talking that is I'll leave it up to you no value judgment totally up to you decide because we've never had this before we've always had campaigners we've had pol- politicians running a political campaign not authentic, not genuine, not straight talking. So now we're like, oh, business negotiator. He must be straight talking. Is he? Totally up to you to decide. I'm not saying either way, but it's a different game that we've never watched before. one 888 I want to come back with one more example from Art of the Deal next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. All right, got another proof here of how Donald Trump is Bruce Lee and everyone else just a bunch of drunk people at a bar. Um, they're trying to fight each other. Like, who do you think is going to win? This is Chris Cuomo with Donald Trump. Now, listen to how Donald answers this question. This is not, I think some people may watch him and be like, what was that? What is he doing? Why would he answer it that way? That doesn't make any sense. Makes perfect sense. Donald Trump knows exactly what he's doing. Here it is. But let me ask you about the Pope. The Pope's coming. Do you want to meet him? Well, I'm Protestant, but I have great respect for the Pope. I like the Pope. I actually like him. He's becoming very political. There's no question about it. But I like him. He seems like a pretty good guy. So here's the moment. You meet the Pope. Pope Francis comes. Right. There's a translator there. Right. And he says, oh, Mr. Trump, this is very nice. And then he says, you know, I want to tell him something. The translator says to you, the Pope believes that capitalism can be a real avenue to greed, it can be really toxic and corrupt, and he's shaking his finger at you when he says it. What do you say in response to the Pope? I'd say ISIS wants to get you. You know that ISIS wants to go in and take over the Vatican. You have heard that. You know that's a dream of theirs to go into he Italy. Talks to you you do about know capitalism? That. You scare no, the Pope? No, I, I'm going to have to scare the Pope because it's the only thing. There's only one. Look, the Pope. 
I hope can only be scared by God. Is the ceiling open you over hey, here? Right now. The Pope, I hope, can only be scared by God. But the truth is, uh, you know, if you look at what's going on, they better hope that capitalism works because it's the only thing we have right now. All right, we so. <laughs> Did you catch that? So, so CNN or Chris Cuomo, who's the drunk guy at the bar, uh, says, "Hey, listen now, yeah, you're, you're the Pope says you're a capitalist, you're corrupt, too much excess, you're being sinful." What would you say to the Pope? Now, anyone else would say, "Well, listen, Chris, uh, I don't think that capitalism is sinful. I, I'm not corrupt. I provide services and products to people who." voluntarily exchange their money for things that they believe will make their life better. And I also employ tens of thousands of people in the process of that. So no, capitalism is not sinful. You know what the headline would be tomorrow if Trump said that? Which is what any reasonable person would say to that answer. You know what the headline would be? Trump, I am not corrupt. That's the headline. A candidate lays out a perfectly articulate analysis of capitalism, and the headline would be the one sentence when he said, I am not corrupt. So there's your story for the day. Trump and corrupt in the same sentence. That's all anyone needs. Anyone reading that headline will see Trump, I am not corrupt, and think, is he corrupt? Why would he even have to say he's not corrupt? That must mean he is corrupt. Trump is corrupt. That's it. Done. Chris Cuomo wins. But Chris Cuomo doesn't know that he's fighting Bruce Lee. And Trump did not take the bait. He did not walk into that trap. He knew exactly what he was going to do. So in response to, you know, what would you say to the Pope about capitalism being um, too much, too sinful, too much excess, all the rest? You know what Trump says? ISIS is going to kill you. (laughs) So it's unbelievable. ISIS is going to invade the Vatican. You should be scared. That's what Trump says. You know what the headlines were now? Trump warns Pope about ISIS invasion. It's a totally different headline. And people watching it too, right? If uh, Trump came back with a, well, you know, capitalism is great because uh, prices send signals to producers and suppliers and people work to supply the need using a efficient supply distribution change. Wah, 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 wah. Like everyone's asleep. But he says ISIS is going to invade the Vatican. The first answer is boring, and the second is very emotional. Now you're thinking, right, you got an instant mental image of what that would be like if ISIS invades the Vatican. And it plays on emotions. It's brilliant. Now, no other candidate could get away with that. But Trump does. ISIS is going to invade the Vatican. That's his answer about capitalism. (laughs) Amazing. And it's brilliant. And no one knows what to do about it. Like, no one knows how to handle this at all. I got three minutes. Let me share one more. Um, There's one other technique that Trump uses called uh, the contrast trigger. Uh, Do I have time to share this? Yeah. 1933. Some scientists asked, uh, did a study, and they asked people to look at a list of 10 fruits. And look at them for 60 seconds and remember as many of them as possible. The thing is, nine of them were written in black ink and one word was written in blue ink. And they would change the word every time that was in blue. Sometimes the word apple would be in blue, sometimes mango, sometimes strawberry, whatever. And then when they were people, they were asked what words they remember. Every time they remembered the blue, whatever word was in blue, because it stands out, stands out. Trump is a master 
of the contrast. America's not just in trouble. It's going down the drain. Free trade isn't a problem. It's terrible. China doesn't just beat us. They kill us. I'm not just a a pro-job candidate. I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. Right? These are strong, contrasting words, and they trigger emotions inside of us. And honestly, emotion trumps reason. And people think, yeah, China is killing us. But what does that even mean? (laughs) What does that mean? China is killing us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it means. Because no one wants to be killed. It, it does not. Most people have no idea what Trump is talking about. He's talking about trade deficit, which is a totally different conversation about what that even means, like China winning our trade deficit. But it doesn't even matter because no one even cares to have that conversation because it's super boring. They just don't want to be killed by anyone. And China's killing us. We don't like to be killed. We want to win. And we're going to vote for the guy who wins because he's a winner. He always wins. He wins all the time. And he's really, really rich. He is a winner. And that's how he's going to walk right into the White House. Remember, Trump is not running a political campaign. He's running a business negotiation. Totally different rules. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter as well. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Slater Radio on uh, Twitter. And stay in touch during the show and, uh, and after the show as well throughout the rest of the week. Uh, last week, I think in this segment we started talking about social justice and how I want to take that term back. I want to make it our own. I don't know if take it back. I don't know if it was ours necessarily in the first place. I think the progressives made it up and then corrupted it. Uh, and I just want to take it. I just want to take it from them. I don't want them to have it anymore. So, so to be honest, I'm not even going to claim that we ever once had it. I just want to steal it and not give it back. Because we're the ones who believe in real social justice. We're the ones who believe in fairness. We're the ones who believe in opportunity, not anyone else. So it's our turn. We deserve it. I'm stealing it. On my... Um, I want to back up a second. We'll bring it back around. On my local show, we... Uh, talked about a new study that was released that says there's no correlation between teacher compensation and student achievement. And it's a long story. We don't need to go into it, but it confirms what you thought was true. All right. The districts in California that pay the most to teachers have below average scores, test scores, and uh, the schools that pay the least have above average, some of the highest. So it, it, Teacher's pay does not make a difference. Teacher pay makes a difference. Teacher pay is based off of merit, how good of a teacher you are. Right? Good teachers should be rewarded based on metrics that are decided by each individual school. 
and it should not be entirely based on test scores, but many other factors that each school should determine. But merit-based pay does improve student performance. But just across the board, paying teachers more, that doesn't make a difference. New York City released their test scores. 35% of kids in New York City are proficient in math. 35%. That is abysmal. The Success Academy in Harlem, 93% proficient in math. In Harlem, 93%. Highest in the state. Harlem, New York City. A little perspective on this. A two-bedroom apartment near PS321 in Brooklyn, known as one of the best public schools in, in, the, uh, in New York, Park Slope Elementary, a two-bedroom apartment sells for over a million dollars. A million bucks. And that's just to get your kids into the good school. That's the only reason why that costs so much. And in that school, 82% were proficient in math. Respectable, wonderful. Actually, I don't know if that's wonderful. I think that's okay, actually. 82%, it should be way more than that. That's just proficient. But still, 82% below every success academy across New York City and, and, and Harlem. There's nine of them across the, uh, across the area. All of, the, all of the success academies in the poorest neighborhoods in the city were higher than Park Slope Elementary. Amazing. I want to, actually not, not surprising, I want to play a, a couple seconds of this clip here. This is uh, Eva Moskowitz. She was a city council member in New York City, and then she's the person who started the Success Academies. Here she is. Are you a progressive Democrat? I'm a liberal. I think that liberals care about the little guy. Mm -hmm. Liberals care about social justice. Why, why do so many Democrats who are liberal or progressive, why do they seem so hostile to, the, to the, just the idea of school choice? Because it seems very much to speak exactly to those issues. I of think social they've justice. been captured by the special interests, and and the you know the teachers union is really about the teachers union. It's about the perpetuation of union hegemony. So she says she's a liberal. Why are you a liberal? Because I believe in fighting for the little guy. I believe in social justice, and I believe she does believe in those things. But she's not a liberal. Not anymore, anyway. And that's what we've been talking about. That's what we talked about last week. Stealing their space. Taking the left's so-called moral high ground. They say they're for the little guy. They're for social justice. No, they're not. Conservatives are. Conservatives are for the most vulnerable in our society. Conservatives are for fairness and opportunity. That is social justice. Forget about the left's definition of it. Forget about it. The true definition of social justice is fairness and opportunity. And the most unfair thing in our country today are the public schools, the public schools, our public school system. The most unfair thing in our country is a public school system, particularly in our inner cities. If you are forced to go to one of these failing schools, that is unfair. That's unfair because now you have almost no opportunity to be successful in life. You, you probably will graduate not even knowing how to do math. 
Yet the schools that, that, that the government runs continue to do the same thing over and over and over and over again. Every year, every year, after year, after year, after year, they do the same things. 35% of kids proficient in math. 35% and nothing changes. That is unfair. That is unjust. Because we're having our kids graduate with no opportunity to be successful. It is true social justice to fight for charter schools and school choice. I don't know how you can how you can be progressive and, and claim to be for social justice and not be for destroying the current public school system and starting completely from scratch again. I'll end with this. Tom Tancredo. Remember, you may remember that name. He ran for president couple elections back or last election, I forget. Um, he had an editorial where he argued that every voter should be able to pass or should have to pass a basic civics test in order to vote. You got to pass a basic civics test. Uh, and not too different than uh, the immigration, uh, the naturalization test to become a citizen, right? Uh, how many representatives are there? What are the three branches of government? Who's the vice president? Stuff like that. So Tom Tancredo thinks everyone should have to pass that test. Now, we can talk about that proposal another day. But people are attacking the suggestion of it. Because they say black people won't be able to pass the test. And they say, it's oh, it's just like the old Jim Crow laws they used to have. So you get that, that's outrageous. That's racist to suggest that that people should have to pass a civics test because there's no way black people are going to be able to pass it. <sighs> that, that was the react, that's the reaction that people have to that, to that suggestion. Now, I don't think that it's a good idea to have a civic. I, I mean, I'm, I mean I'm, I'm leaning on that side like, ah, I don't know if that's a good thing to do. But I'm not the one saying ah, it's because black people can't pass it. Now, if that's true, why can't black people pass a basic civics test? <laughs> right. The, the fact that uh, that uh, that there are people who think a major segment of our population couldn't pass a basic civics test if they had to, that's a big problem. And really it, it's quite racist. Actually. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you're the person who's like, "Well, black people couldn't pass that." Whoa. Why not? If if that's true, why not? Because of our broken school system. That is why I am for social justice, fairness, and opportunity. And gosh, it starts with a free market and education. one 3393 Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later. Last uh, thought here on social justice for the week. Read an article from Leon Wolf from the Washington Post. His article uh, is about how Black Lives Matter protesters have been targeting the wrong people. Right? They're trying to convince Democrats to care about their plight. And he says they should have been trying to talk to Republicans. 
You've seen the Black Lives Matter protesters with Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders, and they take over their events and make them apologize for saying that all lives matter. By the way, did you see the poll the other day? I think it's like 64% of black people say that all lives matter more than black lives matter. Um, but anyway, the, the, the relationship between Black Lives Matter protesters and Democrats have been terrible. But let's back it up, and we'll talk about why they should have been talking to conservatives the whole time. When did Black Lives Matter start? Ferguson. Right? Well, why was there so much unrest in Ferguson? Well, it was Michael Brown. But before that, like Michael Brown was the straw. There was a lot of unrest before then, and it was because police had been unfairly targeting black people in Ferguson. But we got to dig a little deeper than that. Why were they targeting black people? Now, this has been proven to be the underlying issue in Ferguson. This is what the Department of Justice even said is the underlying issue in Ferguson. And you know that they they want to blame race, right? They want to say white cops, black residents, and, and, and uh, it's, it's about racism. But the Department of Justice came back and said it's not about race. Police are targeting not black people, but poor people. Hold on, wait, what? They're targeting poor people. Why? To fund their government. From the Department of Justice report, Ferguson's law enforcement practices are shaped by the city's focus on revenue rather than public safety needs. Ferguson needed more money. The government in Ferguson needed more money. So the way to get more money was to fine people for dumb things. And then when you pull them over, uh, for one thing, you, you get them on 10 more things. One woman, 2007, she parked her car illegally. She got two tickets, $151 plus fees. Well, she didn't have the money. She was charged with seven failures to appear over three years. There was a warrant out for her arrest. She was arrested, spent six days in jail, paid $550 in court fees, still owes another $500. Now, here's the thing. You're saying, well, why didn't she pay it? She didn't pay it because she tried to make payments of $25, but they wouldn't accept anything except a full payment. We could go on. There's plenty of stories. You get the idea. The system was broken. But more than that, the government was greedy. The government was greedy. Do you know 75% of people in Ferguson have an arrest warrant? 75%. And most of them are for stupid things like this. So I made a suggestion the other day. I'd like to make it here with you and see what you think. I don't think it's worth saying... I'm against big government. I think that's I think that's dead. I think that's run its course. I don't think any it doesn't resonate with anyone anymore. There's no emotion with that. We get it. When it, like when I say I'm against big government, you get that. But you already get it. So it doesn't do anything. So why do I keep saying it over and over? It doesn't we we all we're all against big government. Big deal. How do we get other people to be against it too? So I want to make the suggestion here instead of saying we're against big government, Let's say we're against a greedy government. It's the same thing. But people get that. People are against greed. So if we say that we're against a greedy government, then they're going to jump on board. And that's what happened in Ferguson. It was a greedy government. Real quick, you're probably thinking, why would they go after poor people if they want more money? Because poor people don't fight the tickets. They, they, they don't hire a lawyer to fight the tickets. So they're more likely to get the money even out of poor people than they are out of wealthy people. 
So clearly there's some need for some real justice reform in Ferguson and other places across the country. And that's what the Black Lives Matter protesters originally wanted. They should have come to conservatives. They should have come to conservatives because this system, it's unfair. It's unfair. So here's the bottom line. When you have a big government, you have a greedy government. And where you have a greedy government, you have an unjust government. And where you have an unjust government, there's no opportunity. There's no freedom and opportunity. And that's what we stand for, right? Freedom and opportunity. So let's get people to be against a greedy government. New York City, uh, their budget is $75 billion. Or that's, that's what their expenditures are, $75 billion. Their tax revenue is $48 billion. $48 billion to $75 billion. They got a ways to go. The wider and wider that gap becomes, they got to get that money somehow. <laughs> they got to get the money somehow. Sure enough, since 2009, New York City has a 30% increase in traffic-generated fees. 30% increase. And they're going to increase uh, sales taxes and all these other things, which hurt poor people the most. Where you have a big government, you have a greedy government. Where you have a greedy government, you have an unjust government. Where you have an unjust government, you have an unfair government. Where you have an unfair government, there's no opportunity. And that's where social justice comes in. Do you remember the... Um, uh, so that was Michael Brown and Ferguson. Um, Eric Gardner. Remember he was taken down by police, choked, he died. They put him in a chokehold and he died. He was arrested for selling loose cigarettes. Remember that? Individual cigarettes. Why? Why Why was he selling individual cigarettes? Because in New York City, the taxes are by far the highest in the country for cigarettes. 13 bucks a pack. So it's cheaper to buy individual cigarettes. But that's against the law. Entirely. That market is entirely caused by taxes. So again, government. Big. Greedy. Unjust. Unfair deprives people of opportunity so these black lives matter protesters gosh talk to rick perry who's uh the texas incarceration rate has gone down 10 percent over the last five years talk to jindal talk to Rand paul these are the guys who are for real criminal justice reform instead they focused all their attention on the people who have been taking them granted for decades should have been talking to conservatives we are the true social justice warriors You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Kicked off the entire show two hours ago with an interview with uh, the one and only Glenn Beck. Uh, and it'll be on theblaze.com slash radio, so you can check it, the uh, whole thing out. We were supposed to talk about his book, uh, and I think in 25 minutes we mentioned it for maybe 30 seconds. So talked about a lot of different other things about life, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Been getting a lot of tweets about it uh, since we first played it. So theblaze.com slash radio. After the shoe, I uh, want to chat about this video here. Uh, Hillary Clinton, she was in New Hampshire, I believe. Uh, I don't know how this encounter happened. I don't know if it was scheduled or 
if they just came up to her. It looks impromptu. She's just because she's backstage, so it's not as you know staged as um, her normal interactions are with people. Uh, so there's some Black Lives Matter protests. I think three of them or so. And uh, I'm not going to play the first clip. It's pretty funny. Uh, it, it's just heaps and heaps of nonsense. It's, 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 <laughs> she just stands there. It's pretty funny. Her hands are clasped in front of her. Uh, and she's just like a bobblehead doll. Her, her head does not stop moving up and down in, in five minutes. Just five minutes of just, mm-hmm. I said it's five minutes. I'm not kidding. Uh, and I think most people stopped listening after a couple seconds of the clip. Uh, so I don't know if anyone made it this far in. Uh, but check out this exchange. This She says something here really, really interesting that you would think would be headlines everywhere. I would think it would be a disqualifying factor for running for president, truly, but uh, I guess we're far away from, from that standard. Anyway, uh, it's about a minute and a half of this. Enjoy. The piece that's most important, and I, I, I stand here in your space, and I say this as respectfully as I can, but... If you don't tell black people what we need to do, then we won't tell you all what you need to do. I'm not telling you. I'm just telling you to tell me. What I mean to say is that this is and has always been a white problem of violence. It's not... there's, There's not much... That we can do to stop the violence against us. Well, if, if and that it's a is conversation that I've pushed okay, back. I understand. And I understand what you're saying. Also respectfully. Yeah. Well, respectfully. respectfully, if that is your position, then I will talk only to white people about how we are going to deal That's with the very I mean. real That's problems. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. No. But like what I'm saying is, you, you what you just said mm-hmm. was a form of victim blaming. Right? You were saying that what the Black Lives Matter movement needs yeah. to do to change white hearts is. Now I'm not talking about. I, look, change. I don't believe you change hearts. I believe you change laws, you change allocation of resources, you change the way systems operate. You're not going to change every heart. You're not. But at the end of the day, we can do a whole lot to change some hearts and change some systems and create more opportunities for people who deserve to have them to live up to... Blah, blah, blah. She goes on and on. That, That is incredible to me. She says, I don't believe you change hearts. I believe you change laws, you change allocation of resources, you change the way systems operate. That's amazing. That is such a big government progressive answer. Listen now, you, 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 don't, you don't change people's hearts, you, you change laws, you force people to abide by what you think is right. I just, I have to fundamentally disagree with the former Secretary of State and First Lady. I think that is absolutely the wrong way to approach any change that you want to make in someone's life or in our country's future. You must change hearts first. It's the only thing worth changing. It's, it's, that's all that matters. Not, not only does it not matter, it's the only thing that matters. Now, look where the... the I mean, I can prove it like this. I think this is a, a bad argument, but I'll just make it anyway or the, the, the least important argument. Look at where the, the, the Hillary Clinton's approach has gotten us so far. Her approach of change laws first. 
change systems first. Reallocate resources first. Look where that's gotten us. Nowhere. The reason that these Black Lives Matter protesters are against Hillary is because her husband in 1994 signed the Violent Crime and Law Enforcement Act. And she said at that time in 94, she said, we need more police. She said, we need more and tougher prison sentences for repeat offenders. Hillary Clinton said, we need more prisons to keep violent offenders for as long as it takes to keep them off the streets. And that law uh, increased federal funding for prisons by $19 billion. And during Clinton's presidency, the number of prisoners in federal prison doubled. So the Black Lives Matter protesters, they look at this and they blame that law on breakdown of the family. Uh, It's harder for people to reintegrate back into society after you've been in prison for 10 years or whatever. It's harder to find jobs, harder to get a loan for a house, all the other rest. So you know what the goal was in 1994? So So the problem was too much crime, right? Too much crime. So the approach to that was change laws, change systems, reallocate resources. That's what that was. She did. She's telling the Black Lives Matter protesters who are complaining about a change, a 1994 change in laws and change in systems and change in allocation of resources. She's saying, no, no, no. You know what we need more of? We need, we need to change the laws. We need to change the systems. We need to reallocate resources. That's, that's what we need to do. Don't worry about changing hearts. That's not important. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to change hearts. Got to change the laws. No, you don't. Look, look what good that's done. No good. And it's done no good because the most important thing was never changed, and that's hearts. The heart must change. The heart, virtues, principles, family, faith, a sense of community. Striving and encouraging people around you to be righteous and moral, as opposed to joining a gang and selling drugs. It's the only way to make a change. Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, name any social movement. Every, there, there was not a single social movement that was successful that did not start and end with changing hearts. Not a single one. It's impossible. Because it's the only thing that matters. Now, you're saying, well, hold on. There you got the Civil Rights Act and all that. Yeah, yeah. Laws are changed to reflect the change in heart. Laws don't change hearts. Laws are changed to reflect the change in heart, but the change in heart comes first. And Hillary says, I don't believe you change hearts. Our founding fathers knew with 100% certainty that the only way our country would survive is if we were a moral people. That's it. If we had a moral heart. And every place where there's brokenness in the system, It's because there's brokenness inside of someone's heart. Just take gangs. What's the number one reason people join gangs? There's a bunch of reasons, but what's the the, the biggest reason? Number number one reason people join gangs. Have a sense of family. A sense of trust. People who are there for you. People who care about you. Why are people looking for that? Probably because they don't get that at home. They don't get that in their family. Probably because, because different points in their life, people weren't there for them. So they're looking to fill that void and they join a gang because they're promised to get that thing. That's it. It's the number one reason why. So you want to prevent people from going to gangs? You change hearts. It's the only way to fix these endemics. 
Name a single social problem. Name one. One social problem that isn't a heart issue. Teen pregnancy. Abortion. Did you hear, real quick on abortion, did you hear Glenn yesterday say, uh, so Abby Johnson, uh, she used to be a uh, director of Planned Parenthood in Texas. We talked to her on my local show a couple weeks back. Um, and I'm glad that she's getting more attention. Um, she said the code, like the keypad code to, to get into the, her, her clinic was 2229. And I'm thinking 2229, like what, what's the significance of 2229? I was thinking like a 22, like you were a 22 because you're a little girl. You were a 2229. Okay, what's 29 though? 2229. Baby. The keypad, the key code access to the Planned Parenthood was a baby. The freezer where they kept all the parts of the babies, the, all the aborted babies, they called that the nursery. That's a heart issue right there. You, you are in a dark, dark place if you think that's funny. And that's just a bunch of gallows humor, right? That's all that is. Right? They know they're in a dark place. They need a heart change. And laws are done, are then changed to reflect the change in heart, but heart first. So anyway, teen pregnancy, abortion, gangs, drug use, violence, poverty, list goes on. These are all heart issues. And Hillary says, I don't believe in changing hearts. That's something right there. That's really, that's, that's a really powerful sentence. Don't forget that. Hillary Clinton says, I don't believe in changing hearts. Interesting. one 933 Mike Slater show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the blaze radio network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders. I don't know if, if I've ever. I don't know if I'm, last week I mentioned what we're doing, um, with our latest videos. By the way, our uh, video of the Highwayman that we talked about last week uh, just got over a hundred thousand views, which is awesome. So thanks for making that happen. So it's our second video in a row over over a hundred thousand, which is great. So you can check that out on our Facebook page. Just search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Um, you've seen the latest. Planned Parenthood video, right? Um, I'm talking about video number seven. It looks like video number eight sort of has come out, but video number seven is where uh, the former employee talks about removing hearts that are still beating, um, babies born intact, uh, and, and the superior told her to cut the front of the baby's face in half from from chin to the nose so that they could procure the brain. I mean. If, I don't know. I don't know how you get worse than this. And this is video seven, and there's twelve, so you got five more. And the, the preview of number eight is uh, the CEO of Stem Express, who's been buying the uh, the babies, um, joking about them being intact. And I, I don't want to talk about it anymore. You get it. Um, so what we're doing here, I noticed something as we've been chatting about this the last couple of weeks. We've had. Four people call in to my local show and tell their story of having an abortion. 
think about that. Like, think about that for a second. They're calling in to a radio show. And so all of San Diego and sharing something so intimate and so painful and so taboo. But A, they felt comfortable enough doing it, which was a huge compliment. But also they thought it was important to tell their story. And I, I, after the first person, I was like, that's amazing. And then someone else called in. I was like, oh my gosh. And then a couple of days later, someone else called. And then a guy called in and told his story about how he pressured his girlfriend and all this stuff. I'm like, oh my God. So, so I was like, we got, we got to take this opportunity. I feel like a door has been opened in this conversation. And it's up to us to either run through it or or not. And we missed that opportunity. So on my local show, we, we made a, uh, a request for people who want to share their abortion story. We got 12 people. And we're going to make short videos of each person. I'll tell you exactly how we're going to do it. But, but we've, we've, done, we've recorded six videos. We did six last week. Uh, we haven't released them yet. We're still working on editing them and stuff. But we've recorded six. Uh, let me see if I can remember them all. First gentleman, Michael, he and his wife were going to have an abortion. They chose life, decided to give their baby up for adoption. 25 years later... They got back in touch. Michael got back in touch with his biological daughter. Turns out she is now a midwife delivering babies for a living. Not only that, she married a blind guy and they adopted two blind babies. So look, look at what choosing life did for so many other people moving forward, even if they gave their baby up for adoption. Let me take a quick time out. And it is important that I tell you what we're doing. We're going to make of each person. We're going to make a minute video. We're going to make a little longer story, uh, maybe three, four minutes. And then we're going to take all the people and, and uh, weave them all together into one, like 10 minute video. And the audience is not politicians. It's not for lawmakers. These videos are not for congressmen. They're not for us. They're not for you or me. And I don't want to be rude when I say that, but it's not for you, these stories, these videos that we're making. They're for someone who's in a crisis pregnancy right now. They're for someone who, a young girl, woman, boyfriend, husband, whatever, who's in a crisis pregnancy, who doesn't know what to do, and is leaning towards abortion. And we're hoping that if they can watch these videos and hear from these people who have been in that exact same situation. Because it's weird. Whenever someone's going through a tough time, we always think that we're the first people who have ever gone through it. And we're the only people who have any idea what that's like. It's really weird. I don't know what the psychology behind that is. But like, let's say um, you uh, your, your dad's an alcoholic or something. Like, you, you don't tell anyone because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm the only one who has a family member who's an alcoholic. No one else could possibly understand what this is like to know someone to have a family member who's an alcoholic. I'm the only one. We, we do that. And no matter what that the thing is, we think we're the only people. So someone who's in a crisis pregnancy, they think they're the only person who's in a crisis, who's ever been in a crisis pregnancy. And this is their, their, our way of saying, no, and it's, it's not, this, you're not alone. You're not the only person. Look at these other people. Some have made uh, a choice they regret every day of their life. And some have made a wonderful choice. Uh, they chose life and, and look at all the wonderful things that have happened because of that. So that's who these are for. So, that's video number one. Imagine you're in a crisis pregnancy and you watch Michael's video and you don't, you, you're thinking, oh, gosh, if I give this baby up for adoption, like what does that mean? And here's Michael saying, we gave our baby up for adoption 25 years later. She's a midwife delivering babies and adopting other babies around the world. <laughs> right? Just giving a little glimmer of hope. 
to the person who feels hopeless. That was story one, number one. Story number two, ah, woman, she had an abortion with her boyfriend when she was like 19. A year later, she got married to that man. He died four years later. She never had any kids. That was, that was her baby. But she had an abortion. The third story, third person we interviewed, had an abortion. A couple years later, had another baby. And the baby had some development problems. And she thought that God was punishing her. But she pushed through. And uh, he's now a police officer. Um, the fourth person we interviewed... Her parents thought, her doctors told her that she was going to be mentally disabled, mentally retarded. And uh, parents chose life, and now she's a chemist. The fifth story is a woman who had two abortions. Then she got pregnant a third time. She had no job. She had no um, husband didn't want anything to do with her. Her parents were telling her to get rid of it. Um uh, that like no money all i mean just classic uh had her baby she said if i decide that this baby's going to be a burden he's going to be a burden and if i decide that he's going to be a blessing he's going to be a blessing this uh kid he's 26 right now and he's a youth pastor and has traveled the world on mission trips and is just a stud in every way uh, and there was one other story that we interviewed. Sorry, I'm drawing a blank. But that's five of the six. Isn't that awesome? And each each person of the 12 has a different angle on the story. And we're hoping that if we reveal these videos, all of them are when we do, that uh, they can relate. Every, every, no matter what stage you're in, what your background is, whatever, you'll be able to relate to at least one of these videos. So that's the game plan. Just started this week. Hopefully we can release some next week and uh, we'll grow from there. But this is an opportunity where we can really help some people and uh, save some lives. Two of the people, no, excuse me, three of the six that we've talked to who have had abortions have never told anyone. They've never told anyone their whole life that they've had an abortion. It's the first time they told anyone, but they're taking this opportunity because they think they can save some lives. Be on the lookout. Hopefully we can have a couple of these videos released for you next week. Or at least not for you again, for the people who really need them. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater slater crusaders how the heck are you talk to glenn beck at uh three o'clock i'm not gonna lie i recorded the interview a couple days ago but we played it at uh three o'clock that was a fun interview we never ended up talking about his book but talked about life i think you like it theblaze.com slash radio first question was what did you learn about yourself during your month off and the last question was what do you love most about your wife actually the question was what did you love most about your wife yesterday which is a different question, which is why he gives a different answer. Um, and in the interview, we talked about values that are written on the human heart. And I love finding these because 
They transcend political beliefs. They transcend cultures. It doesn't matter where you're born or even time period that you grew up in, right? The things that are written on the human heart. So things that are written on your heart as much as it was written on someone's heart who was born in uh, China in 1810 and Greece in the year zero. They're just things that as human beings, we all value. A couple weeks ago, we talked about um, sacrifice. Sacrifice is something that all humans find admirable. And we talked about um, Hindu mythology and Viking mythology. And it's just transcending time and age or time and culture. Sacrifice is something that's, that's important. Um, here's another one. Oh, let me say this real quick. Now, whether we live our lives according to that value is another question. But the value's there. And we can ignore it as much as we'd like, but it's still there. Here's one example. Have you ever heard of the expression, put skin in the game? Got to put your skin in the game. Get your skin in the game. Do you have any skin in the game? I know you've heard that before. Have you ever wondered where it came from? Let me back it up for a second. I talked the other day with a woman from San Diego. She's 30. She's uh, an estate planner. She's a lawyer. And she felt called to travel to northern Iraq and help the Kurdish and Asidi women defend themselves from ISIS. She felt called to do that. So she decided to ask for donations a couple months ago. Ask for donations. uh, And she got enough donations to fill up a shipping container. But people were asking her, how do we know that this is going to get to the Kurdish women? How do we know it's going to make it? And, and we want to give you money, but how do we know that our money's well spent? You know what she said? She said, I guarantee you that the, sh- that the container will get there. I will travel alongside of it myself. I will meet the container in each port. I will meet it in Iraq and I will deliver the supplies there myself. She put her skin in the game. And you know what everyone said? Here you go. They trusted her because we trust people who put skin in the game. So here's where it came from. Ancient Greece, above the entrance to wrestling schools, there was inscribed strip or retire. Strip or retire. At the time, you you competed in sports naked. So if you're going to enter this building, if you're going to enter this school, this arena, you're either going to get your skin in the game, literally strip, get your skin in the game or get out strip or retire. And I'll spare, uh, on this Saturday afternoon, I'll spare a study on ancient philosophy, but, um, in ancient times, a man's honor and reputation was the most important thing there was. It was the only thing you had in many cases. And the way to prove your argument was to prove that you had skin in the game to the point of your own death. One of my favorite examples of this, and I hesitate to say favorite, but let me just say an extreme example of this is Julius Agrestus. So Julius Agrestus was in the military and he was trying to convince the emperor that there was an invading army coming. And the emperor didn't believe him. And the guy's like, no, I promise you, 
I saw him with my own eyes. There is an army who is about to invade here. We should get ready. And the emperor's like, nah, we don't believe you. He says, no, you should believe me, emperor. And they say, get this man out of here. And the soldier starts to get pulled away. You know what he does next? He says, emperor, since you provide or since you require some decisive proof, I will give you a proof that you can believe. And he took out his sword and slit his throat. So imagine that scene. You got the emperor and all of his men standing around. They're like, no, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. We don't believe you. Get this man out of here. And then he slits his throat. I imagine all the men saying, well, okay then. Okay. I I guess he's telling the truth. I said, I, we believe you now that you killed yourself. Why did they, they believe him? Because he was willing to die for the truth. Now, of course, that's an extreme of that. But the point is we value that. We admire that. Well, you can think that example is stupid because it's so extreme. But the fact that someone is willing to give all of themselves for the truth and all of themselves to a cause, we admire that. It's written on our hearts. Just look at the two Marines who took down the gunman on that Amsterdam to Paris train. We don't even know the full story of this yet, but it looks like a Muslim man got on a train with an AK-47 and 200 rounds of ammunition started firing. Luckily, there were two Marines on that train who said, let's go, took him down, tackled him to the ground. Another Marine took his gun and started beating him in the back of the head with it until he knocked out unconscious. And then they tied him up, saving the lives of every single person on that train. These men were willing to die to save others. They put their skin in the game. Meanwhile, the employees of the train, the train conductors and everything, ran for their lives, locked themselves in the back car. The train conductors, the train employees, and these Marines were each faced with a choice, strip or retire. The employees chose to retire. We're out of here. The Marines, they got their skin in the game. Saved every single person on that train's life. We value that. We admire that. So where do we not see it today? Plenty of places. Look at people on Wall Street. People who make risky deals and then the deals fail and they lose billions and taxpayers pick up the tab. They don't have skin in the game. We don't like that. That's why people, that's why people inherently, they're just like, what? they don't trust Wall Street. They don't trust them. It's because they don't have skin in the game. At least it doesn't seem it. People look at CEOs, right? And the CEOs who um, have these salaries and bonuses that aren't based off of success. And then they run a company in the ground and they walk away with millions anyway. And we look at that and we just say, well, that's, now I know that's, you know, board of directors decision and, and all that stuff. I get the economics behind it all, but still deep down, everyone's like, well, that's not right. That doesn't, it just doesn't jive with what's written on our heart and, and, and about what it means to have skin in the game. Another example, politicians, they send people off to war, but they're not willing to go themselves. Compare that to our founding fathers. Our founding fathers who pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honors. That, that, that's the American equivalent of Julius uh, Augustus, slitting his own throat to prove what's right. Our founding fathers did pretty much the same thing, didn't they? They said, this is the right thing to do. We're going to commit treason and we're going to die for this cause. Nathan Hale, our first spy, before he was hung, you know his last words? 
I regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. I, I wish I could put more skin in this game. I only have so much skin to put for this cause. I wish I had more. We love that. It's written on our hearts. We don't have time to go into the full of this story, but uh, 2012 in um, California here, we passed a bill called Prop 39. Voters passed it. And it was called Close the Loophole. That's all. That was the whole pitch. Prop 39, close the loophole. And because people are mindless sheep, they're like, oh, loophole? I don't like loophole. And they voted for it. And the other pitch was once we close the loophole, whatever that even means, we're going to create green jobs with that money. And we're going to create 17,000 green jobs every year. And we're going to save this much in energy. Turns out three years later, almost no green jobs have been created. And there's been no energy savings because they never even kept track of it. Whole thing based on lies. And what are their consequences going to be? Nothing. Because they have no skin in the game. We don't like that. The EPA, right? They pollute, I think, intentionally. We proved that, I think, last week. I think they intentionally polluted that river. But that's a different story. Uh, What are the consequences for what the EPA did? Nothing. Nothing. No accountability because they have no skin in the game. The Los Angeles VA, it was just uh, announced uh, yesterday that the superiors, the supervisors at the Los Angeles VA, Veteran Affairs, right? The LAVA, told their staff to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not scrap? Scrap. Is that the word? Like, take the piece, like, rip up, tear up the pieces of paper, shred, there you go, shred, shred the medical claims from veterans, shred them, just take them and shred them. So one of our veterans uh, mails in a claim, and the supervisor says, I don't want to be bothered with that. You shred that document. It's like we never got it. (laughs) No one's going to get fired. They don't have skin in the game. Hillary Clinton, she sets up an unsecure server in the bathroom closet of a walk-in apartment in Denver, sends and receives classified and top-secret documents. No consequences. Not yet, anyway. She has no skin in the game. The best leaders are those who are willing to put their very reputation on their words and their actions. Where do we see that? Entrepreneurs. Have you ever seen Shark Tank? I love Shark Tank. I'm mad at everyone I know for not telling me sooner that Shark Tank is awesome. We love The reason Shark Tank, when you watch it, you love it, is because here are people who are risking their everything on their dream. They're putting their entire life into their business. They have skin in the game. And we root for them. We want them to succeed. The Highwayman, right? Video we shared last week. Drives around the highways of San Diego. He's been doing it for 50 years, helping people on the side of the road. If they have a flat tire or they're out of gas, whatever it is, helps them get back on the road. He's got skin in the game. We trust people who have skin in the game. So, what does that mean for us? And by the way, just to go back to written on our heart, that every culture, every country, for all time, We value people who have skin in the game. We don't value people who don't. We don't trust people who don't. So what does it mean for us? Um, Let me just apply it to abortion. The abortion situation. Do you have skin in that game? I don't even know what that means. To be honest. I mean, you know if you do or not. 
Right, but I, I ask that question. Do you have skin in that game? The abortion situation. Do you have skin in the game? Uh, I'm not. I'm not even going to define what that means because you know if you do or not. Whatever the situation is, we got to get our skin in the game. Strip or retire. One last thing on the abortion thing. The reason that the pro-choice people have been saying it's a woman's right to choose, they do that so that 50% of the population, it's, it's like you're not allowed. Like men aren't even allowed to have an opinion on this situation. They say that a woman's right to choose so that 50% of the population isn't even allowed to get their skin in the game. <laughs> That's the whole point of that. But I'll tell you what. Nassim Taleb, his, he, said, he said a half man, a half man is not someone who does not have an opinion. Just someone who does not take risks for it. And there's no half men listening now. Let's get some skin in the game. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. later on the blaze radio network two minutes i'll share one of my favorite scenes from ancient rome uh the army they just had a bunch of victories the roman army but the uh, soldiers were upset because they didn't think they get pay- they got paid enough from the spoils of war so another guy tried to lead a mutiny against the commander his name was paulus so in front of the whole army during this this mutiny going on marcus servilius the big war hero He stands up and he says, listen to this that I am saying, rather than to him, the guy who's leading the mutiny. He has learned nothing but speech making. And of that, he's only learned how to insult and to lie. I have fought 23 times in answer to challenges. From all whom I encountered, I carried off the spoils. My body is covered with honorable scars. Everyone received in front. And then he stands up, or he's been standing the whole time, but he like gets up in front of everyone, and he takes off his tunic. And everyone sees all the scars in the front of his body. And he says, as an old soldier, I have often shown this body of mine hacked with the sword to the young ones. Let Galba, this is the guy leading the mutiny, let Galba strip and show his smooth skin with not a scar upon it. Tribunes, call back, if you please, the tribes to vote. And that was the end of the mutiny, because everyone in the army was like, yeah, that guy's right. <laughs> I'm going to follow that guy. Marcus Servilius put his skin in the game. His whole life he put his skin in the game. And people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to follow that guy. People who live honorably, put their name and reputation on the line for everything they do, those are the people that you can begin to trust. We talked with Glenn uh, at uh, the beginning of the show. You can go to theblaze.com slash radio and check out that interview. I know you will like it. Slider Crusaders will see you in the next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. <laughs>